The episode that you're about to listen to was originally recorded and released in August 2020 on the Just Another Fanboy podcast feed. Feedback can be sent to justanotherfanboy at gmail.com despite what I say when I close out the episode. And with that out of the way, welcome to Just Another Fanboy Reads Madman Comics. The following podcast is going to contain spoilers along with me, just a regular guy, talking about all the things I love such as comics, movies, television, music, and books. So yeah, proceed at your own risk. Welcome to another episode of Just Another Fanboy. I'm your host, and my name is Steven. And I'm here today imploring you folks to buckle in because we are going to continue. We're going to continue. We're going to continue on with my trek through the world of Madman by Mike Allred. Now, let's catch you up a little bit. We've had three episodes so far in which we talked about the first series from Tundra Comics, These books came out of the 90s, back when comics were known to, well, to not be very good. Madman is kind of the antithesis of the big chest, big guns, gritty teeth, giant pouches era of superhero comics. And frankly, it's one of the comics that I point to when people try to tell me that they didn't make good comics in the 90s. And that may have been true if we're talking about the big two. But some of the other publishers were doing some pretty, pretty great stuff. And Madman is one of them. So the original series, three issues, they were double sized issues. So it's almost like six issues, really. Really, when you really think about it, it's like six. These three issues were done in black and white with shades of gray. And let's just catch up on where we were. The first series introduces us to Frank Einstein or the Madman of Snap City. He is a guy who died in a car accident. And a doctor, Dr. Boyford, a very mad scientist type of person, brought him back to life. Boyford named him Frank Einstein after Frank Sinatra and Albert Einstein. And again, I'll point out, if you didn't catch it, it sounds a bit like Frankenstein when it really comes down to it. Frank was set up with a licensed psychic job once it was learned that he had some psychic abilities But Frank didn't remember anything from his previous life. He didn't remember anything from before he died. And it took him a bit to come out of his shell. And at one point, he found that he grew more confident if he wore this suit. It was a modified lab suit made up to look like the costume of a comic book character by the name of Mr. Excitement. Frank's only memory from before he died is of his father giving him... Mr. Excitement comic books when he was a kid. And so he finds comfort wearing the suit, and that's what he wears all the time. Well, in the three issues, Dr. Boyford is hit by a car. He is basically killed by an evil crime lord by the name of Mr. Mondstadt, who wants all of Dr. Boyford's journals, because within those journals are the secrets to immortality. And as he's dying, Boyford tells Frank to put him in the freezer, freeze his body, Go to Buzztown, find his colleague, Dr. Flem, 
bring him back to Snap City. Dr. Flem is the only one that's going to be able to, to cure him, to bring him back to life. And so Frank does that and he gets into adventures along the way. He solves a murder. He, he fights clones. And then, of course, when he gets back to Snap City with Dr. Flem, he goes up against Mr. Monstat. And during this adventure, we're introduced to a woman by the name of Joe Lombard. And she is someone that Frank knows after he was brought back to life. But since Dr. Boyford got hit by the car, it kind of made Frank regress. And he forgot even most of his life from after being killed and brought back to life. So he he's drawn to Joe, but he's not quite sure who she is. Well, throughout these three books, his most recent memories come back. He was kind of starting up a thing at one point with Joe. And the book ends with him taking out Mr. Mondstadt at a circus. And the ringmaster of the circus offers Frank a job, but Frank passes. He says, no, thanks. I'm just rekindling this relationship with Joe, and I want to spend more time with her. And that's kind of how the book ends. And that takes us to the next series. It's also a three-issue series, but this one is called Madman Adventures. This was also through Tundra. It came out in 92, and it featured across the top of each issue on the cover the world's snazziest adventure series. The other thing that made this series different from the first one is that it is completely in full color. The amazing Laura Allred, Mike Allred's wife, is the colorist, and she continues to be the colorist throughout the series. So the book opens up with Frank flying among the clouds, and as he's flying about, he's yelling out, El Bicknivni! El Bicknivni! Which is kind of a weird word. It sounds, it looks Italian, and I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right. He soars higher and higher, and he finds himself eventually in outer space. He turns, rockets back toward the Earth, flames shooting off of him during re-entry, and he pulls up at the last possible moment, zooming past the outstretched hands of his adoring public, shouting out to them, El Bicknivni! El Bicknivni! That's when he wakes up on a park bench, rousted from his dream by a police officer who thinks Frank is a homeless man, and he tells him to go find a warm cardboard box to sleep in. As Frank is coming to, he shouts out the word invincible, and that's when I realized the first time that I read this that the word that he was calling out in his dream, El Bicknivni, is just the word invincible backwards. Frank leaps from the park bench, shouting that he's going to be late, and it gives the policeman quite the fright. Bread and butter, Frank calls back to the officer as he rushes into the park. The cop, of course, is confused, but he gives chase as Frank picks a few flowers. He's like, hey, get off the grass. You can't take those flowers. They're for everyone to enjoy. Frank ignores the cop. He leaps to the top of a wall and then drops off to the other side, where he encounters a woman being mugged by... Street Beatniks! Street Beatniks. Okay, if you're not sure what a beatnik is, it's like... Do you remember the show Dobie Gillis? Uh, Bob Denver, I think his name was, who played Gilligan in Gilligan's Island. I can't remember his character's name in Dobie Gillis, but he was a beatnik. This is one of these guys with a little soul patch on their face and they wear a beret and they're always spouting poetry and they're saying stuff like, dig it, man, dig it. They're into jazz. Well, the fact that Snap City has gangs of roving street beatniks that are basically thugs out mugging people. 
I just find that just wonderful. It's quite endearing. It makes the book even more wonderful. For some reason, it just, it just pushes my buttons and in a good way. And I'm, I'm really not quite sure why. Hey guys, Frank says to them, why don't you do the right thing and give the lady back her purse? Hmm. He tells them that there's a cop just over on the other side of the wall and he pulls himself back up to the wall, looking over the top of it to tell the cop about these street beatniks accosting a woman. But the beatniks pull him back down to the ground and then they just start wailing on him. But what they didn't notice is that Frank somehow slipped free and he's standing atop the wall looking down at them as they're just pounding on nobody in particular. There's three of them and they're basically standing around nobody just wailing away at the thin air. And so Frank doing what he does best, he takes them out with his lead filled yo-yo and he returns the purse to the woman. She is so thankful that she reaches into her purse to offer Frank a reward and Frank's he wants to get out of there. He's late for something. And so he just, she's like, oh, I have to give you something. And so he quickly reaches into her purse as he's running away and he grabs a stick of gum. He's like, I'll, I'll just take this gum. Thank you. Then we get a great nine panel page that shows Frank running from the park. And he's in one panel, he's running. And with one hand, he's lifting up the top of it or the, the bottom of his mask to expose his mouth as he's dropping the gum, stick of gum into his mouth with the other hand. He then leaps from a car to the top of a bus, rides the bus for a panel, jumps from the bus onto a nearby fire escape, climbs to the roof of the building, and then dives off. That all happens on one page. He's about five stories up. This building is about a five to six story building. And as he's blowing a bubble, he's diving down toward the ground and he tries to break his fall by catching hold of a trellis underneath a window of a neighboring house. The trellis, however, breaks apart underneath him and Frank falls to the ground. Frank, a voice calls out from above. I told you that was bound to happen. And there, looking out of the window above him, is Joe Lombard, the love of Frank's life. I absolutely love Joe and I love the relationship between Frank and Joe. They are so adorably cute. It's almost disgusting, but I love them so much. Frank uses his yo-yo like a grappling hook and he scales the side of the house, telling Joe that he's made it every other time and he promises to fix the trellis. He just, he didn't want to be late and really honestly, he was trying to impress her. She tells him that if he really wants to impress her, he could use the front door every now and again and maybe while he's at it, meet her father, whom she says is home. Frank, of course, is very nervous about meeting Joe's dad. He's worried of course, that the guy's not going to like him, and then he won't let him see Joe anymore, which she dismisses, of course, because she's a grown woman. Her dad doesn't tell her who she can date. She lives with her dad, we learn, because her mother had passed away, and she basically stayed with her dad and took care of him. So she's an adult, She's, but she's living with her dad because, you know, it's 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 only the two of them in the family. So Frank, he agrees to meet her dad, but first... Joe's got a surprise for him. She explains that since Frank insists on always wearing the costume, Dr. Boyford gave Joe some lab suits and Joe altered them. She experimented and created a wide variety of costumes for Frank, which she urges him to try because frankly, the one he's always wearing has started to stink. He tries them on one at a time. It's a great sequence. 
of panel after panel of him trying on different costumes. Some of them look good. Some of them look ridiculous. And in the end, he settles on a costume that looks pretty much exactly like the one he's wearing now. The one that he's wearing throughout the first series and as this book ends, it's just an all-over bodysuit. Covers him from head to toe, except for the top of the head, which is open and allows his hair to come out. It's all white. There's black around the eyes and around the mouth, giving it kind of a skeletal look, but not like a creepy skeleton. And then right on the front is what they call an exclamation bolt. It looks like a lightning bolt shaped into a exclamation point, and it's black. Well, in the new costume, it's also all white, but the exclamation bolt is red, and then the sleeves are yellow with some yellow in the armpit area. Joe also gives him a leather jacket because Frank was loaned a a leather jacket from a friend in the first series. In the first series, we meet Gail, who is Dr. Flem's assistant. When they first meet, she's wrapped head to toe in bandages because previously I talked about Frank fighting clones. Well, Dr. Flem had tried to clone himself and he created a bunch of clones that went bad and they held Gail down and they tattooed her body from head to toe with stars and planets and comets and moons and such. And so she's wearing these bandages from head to toe that have been soaked in a particular chemical in hopes that this would remove the tattoos. Gail is also a scientist. She is, she's a very smart lady. And she's, like I said, Dr. Flem's assistant. Well, when they meet, she's got a leather jacket on along with her bandages. And she sends Frank up into the mountains outside of Buzztown to look for Dr. Flem. And she says, here, you'll need a jacket because it gets cold up there. Well, Frank really enjoys this leather jacket. And so Joe gets him one of his very own. That's when they go downstairs so that Frank can meet Joe's dad. As they're getting to know each other, Frank asks Joe's dad, who's now retired, what he used to do for a living. And her dad answers a bit ominously. I guess you could call it the extermination business. Joe clarifies, though not really, with corporations would hire dad to take care of pests. Now, I don't know what this is all about. I don't remember this ever coming up again at any point during the series. Now, as I explained in one of the one of the previous episodes, I have read most of these books before. The first series and the second series were done through Tundra. That's a total of six issues. The third series was put out by Dark Horse, and there were like 20-some-odd issues. And I only made it up to maybe 18, 17. I, I feel like the last four or five issues I never read. And then eventually he goes to Image and starts the series, a, a, a new series, and... uh I only read the first few of those. And and again, there were probably, I don't know, another 20 or so from there. So this may come up at some point in the series. I just never got to those issues. But you got to kind of wonder what Joe's dad used to do. At that point, Frank tries to explain to Mr. Lombard what he does for a living. He tells Joe's dad that he's a scientific research assistant. But that's not really good enough for Mr. Lombard. He wants to know exactly what Frank does. Frank explains that he assists Dr. Flem and Dr. Boyford, who again, they're very mad scientist type characters. And he assists them with their ongoing projects on psychic abilities. And at one point he explains he was actually a licensed psychic. He doesn't really know much about his past, but he does know that sometimes he can touch people and he sees things. And he also says he thinks that Mr. Lombard has a swell daughter. 
Mr. Lombard seems quite interested in Frank's psychic ability and wants to know if he can control it, if he can just read people whenever he wants. Frank explains that he can't. It's not something that he can control. And eventually the interrogation ends and Frank and Joe set off on their date. The two meander through the city hand in hand. Frank explains that they might have just enough time to make it to the movie, but Joe doesn't really want to go. She doesn't want to go see a movie. I just want to be able to spend time with you, she tells Frank, who responds with a simple, golly. Again, Frank is adorable, and Joe and Frank are extra adorable when they're together. Joe suggests that the two go to Yonder Point. Frank's never been to Yonder Point, and so Joe takes him to Yonder Point. Yonder Point looks out over Snap City, and, is, and it's apparently where couples go to make out. You've never tried to kiss me, Frank. Why, don't you want to? Joe says to Frank. Yeah, sure. You mean you'd like me to? Frank says, that's when Joe lays a big smacker on him and the two commence to smooching. Eventually, they find themselves back in the city. Frank, he's quite beside himself. He just can't bring himself to believe that anyone would like him. Why is it you're the only one that can't see how beautiful you really are, she says. So what if you have a few scars? Is that all you can see? You have the richest soul of anyone I've ever met. Joe pulls his mask down and wonders if it's the long scar on his forehead that he's so self-conscious about. If so, she suggests that he just parts his hair on the other side. But when she does that, she reveals a big metal plate on the other side of his head. Their date ends and they make plans to meet again tomorrow. They kiss and Joe heads inside. Frank then dances with joy around the city, eventually standing on a large bridge and calling out, that he's the luckiest guy in the world. Frank skips home full of glee and joy and finds that Dr. Boyford is still up. In fact, we can see that the doctor is injecting something into his tongue. He's standing there with his back to Frank and he's injecting something into his tongue, something he doesn't want Frank to see because the moment Frank enters, Boyford spins and hides the syringe from Frank. When Frank points out that Dr. Boyford seems flustered, the doctor that admits that he was trying out a new experiment. He shows him the, the syringe. He tells him that he didn't want to say anything until he was a bit further along to make sure it all worked. But he's created a new serum that taps into the unused sections of the brain, and he calls it the brain expander. Dr. Boyford then tells Frank that the ringmaster that we talked about from the previous series, you know, from the circus, He's the guy that offered Frank a job at the end of the series. He has called again. He wants Frank to join the circus, and now he's offering to let Frank bring Joe along. Frank decides that joining the service and traveling the country with Joe just might be something that he wants to do, and he figures he'll call the guy back in the morning. But life has other plans for Frank. Dr. Flem's assistant, Gail, enters. She's come from Buzztown to get Frank. Flem needs his help on a new experiment. But Frank doesn't want to go to Buzztown. He's got a date with Joe tomorrow. He doesn't want to leave. He knows that he can't get to Buzztown and back in time to make his date with Joe. But Gail assures him that he can help with the experiment and still be back in time for his date. Frank, well, he's got his doubts. But Gail takes him down to the basement and shows him a little car on a set of rails that has come out of a hole in the wall and there's a tunnel beyond and she calls it the Moto Rooter and explains that Flem built it and that with that, they can be in Buzztown in less than an hour. So basically, Dr. Flem has now built a tunnel from his home in Buzztown to 
Dr. Boyford's home in Snap City. And there's this little car, this little rocket car that they can ride between the two houses. When they arrive at Dr. Flem's place in Buzztown, the entire place is different. There's a new underground lab with an elevator, which, along with the Moto Rooter, has Frank wondering how Flem could have had the time to build it all. Meanwhile, before Flem can give an explanation, Gail, still wearing her bandages, removes them to show her progress in removing the tattoos. And, well, it didn't quite work. Ironically, the stuff that the bandages were soaked in removed everything but the tattoos. So basically, she's the invisible woman, but you can still see all the tattoos. It's it's kind of weird. Dr. Flem then takes Frank around the house to show him his new top-flight scientific headquarters that both he and Frank have spent the last two years building. Frank, of course, doesn't understand what he means. He, he hasn't even known Dr. Flem for two years. How could he have been building a freaking secret lab for the last two years? He doesn't remember it. How is that possible? Well... It's possible due to time travel. He shows Frank one of his latest inventions, which is like a little, it looks like a little spaceship with an open cockpit, and he calls it his time vehicle. And he explains that after he built it, he went a little ahead into the future to find Frank waiting for him. And there's this whole timey-wimey stuff that they get into where... Frank knew he was coming because he remembers this day from the past and he tells Flem all about it. And so then the two of them go back into the past two years and spend two years building all this stuff and trying to stay away from both Frank and Dr. Flem from the present. It's it's a big thing. It's a big head twister. But in the end, Flem explains that he wants to take the time machine with Frank's help, fly up into the atmosphere position themselves slightly above the earth, letting it rotate below them. Then riding an accelerated time vortex, he wants to document a brief history of time in a matter of days. Basically, as Frank puts it, he wants to videotape all of human history. And he wants to take Frank with him. Frank, Frank doesn't really want to go. Despite the fact that regardless of how long this may take, it's a time machine. So he's going to get back in time for their date. But it is going to take a few days and he doesn't want to really be separated from Joe for for more than overnight, which again is quite adorable. But he agrees to go and so they get everything all set up and before they take off, they have to take these knockout pills. I think they call them travel knockout sedative pills, which helps their journey through the time vortex. And so they get into their, they get into the cockpit, which again, let me explain. It's an open cockpit. There's no roof. It's like a freaking convertible. So they take their pills. They get in. They strap in. The, the engine is humming. The rockets are about to fire. Frank realizes that he's forgotten something. He's kind of dizzy at this point. The pills are taking effect. He realizes he, he forgot his backpack. So he undoes the seatbelt. He jumps out. He grabs the backpack, feeling even more dizzy as the pills are really starting to bear down upon his brain. And that's when the time vehicle takes off. It rockets upwards and Frank manages to jump and grab onto the side of the vehicle and pull himself in as it takes off. And as it enters the vortex, Frank, sitting there next to Dr. Flem, who is already unconscious, Flem's already out, Frank passes out. And that's when we notice as the issue is ending, Frank forgot to put his seatbelt back on. Cliffhanger. Again, it bears repeating. The cockpit is an open cockpit. It's a convertible. 
They're going into a freaking time vortex. There's a good chance that Frank may fall out. But that's the issue, and I loved it so much. I love the fact that they spend so much time just, it's almost like a day in the life of Frank Einstein. He's napping on a bench. He had just sat down to rest his eyes and he falls asleep. He has the dream. He rushes through the city. He spends the day or the evening and night with uh, Joe, his one true love. We meet Joe's father who may have an ominous past. We don't, we don't quite know. And now he's rocketing off on some adventure through time with Dr. Flem, which is already starting out badly. The colors, Laura Allred's colors are, they're beautiful. Let me just say that. I love her colors. She uses a lot of flat colors with a little shading, which works perfectly with Mike Allred's art. It gives it kind of that pop art look. And as amazing as her colors are, she does manage to get even better as the book continues. But the black and white with shades of gray from the first series worked with the book, but the colors just give it, it just makes the book pop even more. It just makes the art spring off the page. The colors are bright and vibrant, but not, like I said, they're, they're, they're flat, bright, vibrant colors that pop off the page. They're subtle as far as she, she doesn't spend a lot of time blending and shading and using the colors to define muscle tone. You know, the, the thing that, as digital coloring starts becoming a thing over the next few years, because this is around the time that it, that it really kind of, that, that it was in its infancy, but as it develops throughout the next few years, colorists begin to, I guess you could say over color. I mean, I can't really blame them. This new technology comes about and they're able to just really do so much more with the art form than they were able to do than, than they were ever able to do before. And so they really start flexing their creative muscles and some of them do it really well. And again, some of them just, it's like they overcompensate and it ends up not looking very good. Laura Allred, on the other hand, again, I use words like bright and vibrant, but then I use them along with the word subtle because her use of coloring, she doesn't overdo it. She knows what needs to be on there. She gets it done and she'll always be one of my favorite colorists because of that. And then the story itself, I mean, the first series was once you get past the, the crazy, wacky, mad scientist stuff like the, like the freaking zombie clones and the, the dude being brought back to life. You know, once you get past that, it was really kind of a ground level type of story. But this one, by the end of the first issue, we're dealing with time travel and it's about to get wacky. It's about to get crazy. And I don't, I don't quite remember what we're getting into here because it has been a while since I've read these, but I think we're coming. I, I think we're about to have a whole lot of fun. That's what I'm saying. But until then, my name is Steven and I'm just another fanboy. Be nice to each other. Stay safe. Wear a mask. Just Another Fanboy is a Stephen or Else production. Questions and comments can be directed to feedback at stephenorelse.com. You can support the show for as little as a dollar a month at patreon.com slash stephenrorr and get instant access to the My Other Podcast podcast, a weekly show about all the comics and such I don't have time to talk about here. You can find me on the World Wide Web at stephenorelse.com or find me at Twitter and Instagram by searching for at 
Stephen or else. I also encourage you to subscribe to the show, leave us a five-star review, and share this episode with a friend. Just Another Fanboy is a proud member of the Comics Podcast Network. You can find that over at comicspodcasts.com. All links will be in the show notes. Good job. Ooh.